we find that the more disclosure you provide, the greater the disagreement that exists within these uh, ESG ratings. Welcome to the Future and Sound podcast. I'm your host, Jen Wilson. This is a podcast where we talk about prioritizing people, planet, and profit. In each episode, we'll learn from world-leading experts who can help us see the future we want and a role in it. Quick story. Just weeks before the clothing company Boohoo was hit with fresh allegations about poor working practices in its factories, a company called MSCI gave the UK fast fashion retailer a strong ESG rating. How could this be? My guest on the show today recently co-authored a paper exploring whether more disclosure from companies on their ESG performance would help make ESG ratings more consistent. In other words, they work to answer the question, does more information actually help us agree which companies have the best performance on ESG? This is episode nine, the limitations of ESG ratings. Anywhere Sakochi is an assistant professor at Harvard Business School, where he teaches the financial reporting and control courses to MBA students. He is a faculty affiliate to the Gender Initiative at HBS and the Center for African Studies at Harvard University. Siko, I'm delighted to have you on the Future in Sound podcast. Welcome. Thank you. The pleasure is all mine. Siko, I'm interested in your journey. Was there a pivotal moment when you decided to become a professor? Uh, so, so I guess, you know, I, I tried to think of if there was one, but maybe it's just, you know, a series of events over my, my lifetime. Uh, so maybe I'll start from the beginning very quickly. So I was born and raised in Zimbabwe. Uh, my, my parents were farm workers. My father was a domestic chef, uh, so he would cook for the, the owners of the farms. And my mother did uh, pretty much, you know, everything that you can think of on the farm, working in the fields, uh, but spent most of her time really taking care of us at home. Uh, and, and, and then my father moved to a nearby town uh, where they live now in Banket, a uh, very small service town. But the reason for his move was so that we could go to school. Uh, the, the farms that we used to live in didn't have uh, good schools. So he wanted us to, to be educated. Uh, I guess in some ways, it's always the dream for parents that they, their children don't live the same way that they did. And that was very true to my, to, to my, to my father. And so we moved to, to, this, uh, to a town called Banket, where I went to school there, uh, all the way into secondary school and then went to high school. So growing up, I, I was surrounded by lots of opportunities. Uh, you could see that there was potential in people, very hardworking people. Uh, people worked hours on end, but because of what they were doing, it really did not lead to any prosperity, uh, so to speak. And so I, I, I've always thought, you know, people could do much more. And so when I went to high school, uh, this was back in 1999, uh, in Zimbabwe, we follow the A-level system, which is uh, under the British system. So you go to your primary school, your O-levels and your A-levels. And so for the A-levels, I had the, the opportunity of specializing in four subjects. 
mathematics, accounting, management of business, and geography. The management of business piece was not required. I was only required to take three classes. So I, I took that one because of what I had seen. I've always thought that if we could manage our businesses well, if we could do something amazing, uh, there are people that work hard. So Zimbabwe could be uh, developed. So I guess in some ways you could say that's really the beginning of me really interested in how to go about sort of best practices, good management of businesses. Uh, and so I spent two years focusing just on those two sub, uh, four subjects, uh, really learning about business, how it should work, the accounting of it. Uh, and then I got the opportunity to come to the US. Uh, so then that, that really sort of launched me on a, a really different path gave me opportunities to see how businesses are done in a country that in some, I think in, in all measures, right, the businesses here have excelled. Uh, and so that really, I guess in some ways, uh, being in the US allowed me to then explore. So I did consulting, uh, which allowed me to really get a sense of different types of businesses, different types of issues. And obviously at the back of my mind, the thinking was I'm going to learn as much as I can uh, and bring these things back home uh, and try to, to, to develop. Uh, so I, 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 during my college years, I actually went back to Zimbabwe uh, to do an internship there, uh, which allowed me to really interact with businesses uh, and also students uh, that were planning to apply to, to U.S. colleges and other universities. Uh, and that then sort of that internship, in some ways, is the reason why I am still in the U.S. Uh, because. I, I, when I was there, I, I discovered the really the difficulties of operating uh, in, in the system where just the resources in some ways were limited, right? Uh, you know, the, it could be politics, it could be economics, many, many things, historical uh, issues. And so I decided I was going to then find a way that I could contribute uh, that was going to be impactful for the long term. And maybe not just for Zimbabwe, but uh, more globally. And so when I was doing my consulting work, I started to interact a lot with professors uh, and thinking about, you know, what, sort of seeing really what way that they contributed to policymaking. Uh, lots of professors got called to be expert uh, witnesses. They went to, uh, to Congress to really interact with, uh, with leaders in, in government. They were advisors to companies. And so to me, it it was almost a light bulb, right? Instead of going off and saying, wait a second, you know, if I really want to fully understand the problems that we have and how we can deal with them, uh, being a professor was just a perfect way. Uh, and so over the last 10 years, I've really been on this journey, uh, my PhD for five years and now for five years uh, as a professor. And as we maybe go back and forth on these issues in terms of some of the things I've done, uh, it's really allowed me to, to, to see issues, to talk to business leaders, to talk to government leaders. And I'm hoping that you know, going forward, uh, I, I, you know, my research will contribute in some small way right, to, 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 to development uh, in Africa and, and the world over. I'm interested in this point about uh, impact. So you study corporate disclosure and credit ratings, amongst other things at Harvard. Why are credit ratings so important in your view, Siko? Oh, very interesting question. So I, I would start by prefacing that, you know, there are different camps, right? So if you think of what people think of for rating agencies, some people don't like them. Uh, some people think they should go away. Uh, and then there are some people that sort of really look at them and say, there is this sort of inescapable relationship between ratings and the global economy. And I have to say, I fall on that side of this the, the sort of the spectrum where there is a lot of capital that could be deployed in different parts of the world. Uh, 
right? And, and the ratings allow for most of those capital providers to have an easy way of making a quick assessment of uh, the worthiness of uh, business enterprises, the worthiness of you know, ca- countries. Uh, and, and so that helps, right? Uh, and so f- f- from, from my, you know, I guess on, in my opinion, uh, credit ratings are very, very important. Uh, they may not always be accurate. I think that's sort of one of those things that we have to, to, to deal with. Uh, but at least they provide a starting point for, 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 for lenders, for investors to just, you know, without expending a lot of resources, to be able to see where they could deploy their money. Uh, and so for that reason, uh, you know, it, then it is up to countries, to companies, to really try to understand how these ratings work so that they can place themselves in a position where they get you know, more favorable ratings than they would otherwise would without really thinking about uh, how they interact with the ratings. When you explain what a credit rating is to uh, students who might not be familiar, they're at the MBA and they're not necessarily coming from a business background, in simplistic terms, how do you usually explain it? Well, a, a rating is just a measure of how uh, good an entity is with respect to its ability to pay back uh, loans or any obligations uh, that it may have. That makes a lot of sense and actually feeds really well into a question that's more ESG specific. So. On previous podcast episodes, so for example, speaking with the likes of Jason Mitchell, um, head of responsible investment uh, for Man Group, we talked a lot about issues with consistency between ESG ratings and how some ratings might rate a company really highly on ESG and others have other raters say, no, actually, this company is not so good. I'm just wondering, I mean, you've recently co-authored a fascinating paper, and all listeners that are interested in this topic, please read. The paper is called, uh, Why is Corporate Virtue in the Eye of the Beholder? The Case of ESG Ratings. So you study the phenomenon of these inconsistent ESG ratings. I'm interested, just at a high level, what do you find in this research? Uh, again, so thanks for, for pointing out that paper. Uh, it, it is really, in some ways, very interesting paper that uh, I've been spending time over the last uh, couple of years. And it fits well, again, with the discussion of ratings. Because So I come in from that perspective right, of understanding credit ratings. And so in this paper, obviously, with what we have seen with the ESG ratings, we, we, we were interested in trying to understand why is there so much disagreement? Uh, and there are many things we could have studied, but one that we thought was really first order was thinking about what information is available right, that people are using to make the assessment for, for ESG performance. And so at a high level, uh, we, we then try, we, we then look at, you know, what does disclosure do uh, to, to the, 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 the ability that raters have uh, to assess the companies. And we find that the more disclosure you provide, uh, the greater the disagreement uh, ex- that exists within these uh, ESG ratings. Uh, and so we can go on and talk about sort of what does that mean, but at least sort of just very quickly, that's what we find. This is so fascinating because so often there's this push, one must disclose more reporting so that we can get more accurate about what good performance looks like. Why do you think this is? Like, wh- what is driving this, Seiko? Uh, so again, uh, really is a topic that we could spend the entire day, but because of uh, the, the, the time limitations, and also I think you know at least what what I think is really happening here is uh, with everything, right? We always have sort of the infancy 
of uh, it, it could be a profession. We could have sort of just uh, anything that we are starting to do. It, there's a lot of learning that has to happen. And so with ESG, I think what is happening now is we still don't understand right, what makes for good ESG. Uh, and then with all these different rating agencies coming up, they all have different ideas right, of what should be measured, how it should be measured. So now when you give uh, people or evaluators a lot of information, when to begin with, they don't really agree on what to measure or how to measure it, then you're giving them a lot more things to disagree on. Right? And so I think that's sort of one of the key things uh, that happen here. And this is something that I think, you know, if you go to some of the sociology lit literature that people have really looked at, you know, what happens when uh, people don't really have a sort of a, a, a core set of values that they, they all agree on, that there's going to be some disagreement. And in the capital markets too, I think in, in many ways in the capital markets, we think disclosure is helpful. That's why if you look at financial reporting, back in the 1940s, 1930s, you know, the financial reports are maybe, you know, in, I guess in some cases, one page, in some, and then maybe up to 20, 25 pages. But now financial reports are up to 200, 400 pages because we think more information is good. Uh, and that's, I think that's true for, for, for many parts because we, with the financial accounting, we understand what, you know, if someone says leverage is high, you know, right away, we all understand what that means, right, in terms of that this company uh, has borrowed a lot, and then we make an assessment, is it too much, is it optimal, uh, but with ESG, there's just so many things, right, I think there, uh, in this case, for most people, seven, between 300 to 700 items that we are looking at, right, and there are also three constructs, so we have uh, the environmental issues, we have the social issues, and we have the governance issues, we're trying to bring those all together into one measure, Right. Uh, and so there's so many different layers of the, 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 the issue here. Uh, and then disclosure simply just makes that harder, uh, especially if there is no uh, sort of uniform way that the disclosure is being provided. And there's also no uniform way that the disclosure is being assessed for, for this performance. So more disclosure, more subjectivity less agreement between ratings. I'm interested if we uh, fast forward into the future, say 40 years from now, if we had a crystal ball, do we think that we'll get to this point of convergence where the more information we have, it will be like financial uh, disclosures and we'll be all be able to agree? Or is that just impossible given the complexity and the nature of ESG, Seiko? Oh, in interesting question, right? And, and that's one that you know, I think I, uh, is in, a number of people have asked, uh, especially since this uh, paper that we just published. Uh, and it's one that uh, I'm going to answer it from my perspective, which happens to be one of an irrational optimist, right? I, I, I tend to be very optimistic about how things progress. Uh, and then obviously I would touch on the, the, the other side, which is sort of the what could be the pessimistic side, or maybe not pessimistic, but what could be the practical side. So I'll start with the optimistic value. So from the optimistic side, if you, again, going back, taking these parallels to the financial accounting, when financial accounting started, you know, or I guess when bookkeeping started, right? I guess if you really talk about accounting, uh, it, we have to go back to even, you know, ancient times uh, where, you know, as soon as trade started to happen, right? so you can go back to the 1600, even, to, you know, before, I guess, even before Christ, where people were keeping track of what they've sold, what they've sold, uh, because, you know, even in biblical times, there's usually a lot of trade happening, you know, sometimes happening outside the temples. 
And so people have to find ways to keep track of what they were selling, uh, how they were selling it. And then, so if you sort of fast forward, right, to where we are now, you know, we are now looking at, you know, 400 pages of information, right? And you can find all kinds of amazing information in financial accounting today. So in some ways, uh, ESG reporting and ESG uh, sort of assessment is something that is still maybe, you know, a thousand years back, right? If you think of, you sort of talk about how slow some of these things may move. So from that perspective, I am very optimistic that, you know, as we sort of grapple with these issues, as we think about these issues, we have a lot of different stakeholders now that are involved, right? So we have people like you that have really been exploring uh, sort of this topic from different perspectives, talking to different people, and also having been in practice actually implementing uh, these issues, uh, uh, sort of CFOs, CEOs. And then we also have academics like myself that are sort of really starting to ask the questions, how do we measure uh, ESG? How do we think about disclosing ESG? And then we have regulators, uh, the SEC in the, uh, the United States, so the Securities Exchange Commission, uh, it's starting to also get onto this uh, bandwagon. I think as we speak, they do have a lot of proposals that are going through. And we have countries all over the world that have required that there be disclosure on ESG. Uh, And so now I think we are at a point where we are starting to step back and say, what should that disclosure look like? Uh, What should ESG ratings, uh, you know, really measure? And also the rating agencies themselves, right? They're they're starting to think about really uh, reframe what they've been doing. Uh, So it, it is very important to note that just within the last three or four years, all the major rating agencies have either changed their methodologies or they've changed the names they call these ESG ratings. So they used to just call them uh, sustainability performance uh, or even ESG performance, but now they're calling them uh, environmental, uh, social and governance risks metrics. So they're sort of putting that word risk in there, which is trying to really put some structure uh, in terms of, you know, what is it that we're trying to capture? And so for that reason, I think over the next, uh, you know, several years uh, or sort of into the future, there is going to be something we all agree on. Uh, you know, maybe we may not agree on the numbers, but at least we agree on what that construct actually is. That makes a lot of sense. And in a way, it sounds like 40 years actually might be pretty good timing to agree on all of these points, given uh, how long it's taken for us to to figure things out on regular financial uh, reporting. That, that's right. And, you know, we still haven't figured out everything in regular financial accounting. We're, there's things we are still that are still evolving, right? But I think most of it we understand. And the same will happen with ESG. Uh, and I think, it, you know, with ESG, we are more sophisticated now, right? Because we have places where we can learn from, right? And we also have credit rating agencies uh, now coming into this game. They understand how to make assessments. So what I'm hoping to see is that they'll bring their expertise, their experience from doing credit ratings and really sort of put some frameworks and structures in ESG. And that is actually started to happen. So that gives me a lot of hope uh, that, you know, we are going to start to understand and sort of really get a lot of benefit uh, from these ratings and the disclosure itself. One of the things that really struck me in the paper was that there were different impacts on consistency of ratings, depending on which metrics you're looking at. And one of the things that you distinguish in the paper is inputs versus outcomes. And I'm wondering, Siko, if you could explain to us what 
what you mean by inputs and outcomes in the context of ratings and and why they matter. Mm, yes, yeah. Yeah, so very briefly, right? Uh, so the inputs, we're looking at what are the things that the company is doing, right? And what are the things that the company is putting in place to ensure that there is a good ESG, uh, environmental, social, and governance uh, performance at the firm, right? So as an example, uh, if the company wants to have good diversity, right? So this could be gender diversity, racial diversity, ethnic diversity. They may have a policy in place that says, you know, we do not, uh, we have a policy in place that uh, sort of does not allow for discrimination, right? Uh, they may have a policy in place that says we will we, we always have 40% male or 40% female representation at every level of management. So we call those inputs, right? And this is just a labeling issue. Someone may come and give it a different name. But what we're trying to get at there is what are the things we see happening at the company uh, that will then lead to what we're calling outcomes, right? And so for outcomes, uh, we are no longer talking about do you have a policy on gender diversity? Do you have a policy on ethnic diversity or racial diversity. We are now going to say, what is the percentage that you have in your company of female executives or what percentage do you have uh, based on, on, on race? So that really speaks to the, to the outcomes, right? And one of my favorite is if you have a policy that says we are going to protect the, the environment by not uh, contributing to deforestation. Outcomes would then say, you know, here are the trees that we have planted, or here is, you know, what we've actually, uh, the resources that we have put in uh, to make sure that we actually uh, protect our environment. I mean, ostensibly, you could have a company with best practice policies for diversity and not a single woman or person of color working for the company. It's not impossible. That document could exist, just not followed. That's a really helpful distinguishing uh, explanation. I'm also interested, how does that translate into the impact on uh, ESG ratings and how consistent they are? Uh, yes, and so maybe I'll start by going back again to the question of why is that important, right? Uh, and so at the end of the day, right, we, I guess we can agree that the, really the most important thing is the outcomes. Right, sort of seeing that you know there are people of color working there, you know they're actually happy, they feel included, and that our forests are actually being preserved, right? So those are the things that we really want to see. And so now, why this matters for ESG ratings or how it impacts ESG ratings is when you then sort of sort of move from what the company is doing is providing information, and you look at what are the rating agencies actually valuing. Uh, and putting into these ratings. Uh, so if they're just looking to say, do you have a, a, a policy on gender diversity, right? They say, check. Uh, then, or do they say, are you a member of the UN, uh, I guess sort of the SDG, right? So we're talking about sort of these social uh, uh, and the governance issues that the UN is pushing. And then they say, yes, you are, check. Right. So that makes it easy for them because they're just sort of going down the list of things that a company has. But, you know, it, it, it misses the point of what, you know, we all, the reason why we're all talking about ESG, it is really to protect our, our, our environment. It is to protect uh, sort of the, the populations of the world. And it is also to make sure that things happen that do not really sort of cause a lot of fraud, uh, but that, you know, our environment and our people are protected. 
Uh, and so I think, you know, I see why uh, rating agencies may want to do that because it's easy. Uh, and for what we actually find is that it's very difficult for rating agencies to agree on how to assess an outcome, right? Uh, and so if I say as a company that our injury rate, right, is 5% and someone says our injury rate is uh, 10%, right, so we then have to sort of think about, is that good or is that bad? You know, do we want anybody to even get injured at work? Maybe we want zero, uh, but in some cases, maybe we don't know whether, you know, it's possible to have zero. And so the outcomes tend to be very hard or very difficult for for. for for many people to really assess or to agree on. We can easily agree that you have a policy, but we really have a hard time then sort of saying what is the right outcome. But in my opinion, that's where we want to go, to be able to come to a point where we are talking about performance with regards to the actual outcomes. I'm not saying it's not important to capture the inputs because to get to the outcomes, you do need to sort of have the inputs. You need to have the processes that will give you these outcomes or these outputs, right? Uh, and so that's in, in some ways, right? So it's important because of what we care about, which is the outcomes. Uh, but it also, comp you know, it, it also then informs going forward what should we be talking about, right? We need to then agree on, you know, what type of things should disclosure reflect? Uh, is it always about inputs, which are easy for companies to do and easy for the rating agency to check the box, or should companies also provide more about what their outcomes are? That's a really helpful explanation. And it sounds like in some ways, I mean, we can sort of understand why this has happened. You know, investors are pushing for comparable metrics to help them integrate ESG into their processes. And you need something consistent to then decide, okay, if I want to quote unquote, tilt my portfolio, i.e. take the top 10% of performers on ESG, I need information on performance for all of the companies. And I can understand why in its infancy, uh, this movement toward ESG ratings uh, perhaps has not gone as deep as, as we'd hope into outcomes because it's more tricky, but that's definitely got to be the target, hasn't it? You know, we can't, we can't say that they're ratings when they don't really assess the actual impact or outcome of the activities. I completely agree, right? Uh, and again, I think acknowledging that we do need to understand the inputs. We do need to understand the processes that are going into place. Because if they're right inputs, they're right processes, and then hopefully that leads to the right outcomes, right? So whatever that right outcome is for the for individual companies. But I think as a society, right, we want to be able to get to that point where we can actually see uh, the outcomes. We see people getting employed, feeling included, the environment preserved, uh, and then people's money is protected, right, with respect to the governance. Yeah. And I think business leaders are already applying this to different aspects of their businesses. So key performance indicators that are leading and trailing. You want to make sure that you're doing the activities that make a difference and then also tracking whether the difference is occurring as you expect. And so in a way, it's just it's something that we're doing in other aspects of business and it's just time to push the the trailing uh, indicators for ESG a bit bit more intensely, I guess. Yeah, that, that is absolutely correct. Yes. So on this journey, say the next 40 years of becoming more and more concrete and consistent when it comes to ESG ratings, what are some of the most important things to do in the next two to three years to improve the data to get us moving in that direction? 
Uh, yes, yes. Uh, so I guess, you know, th there is, is a number of things. Right? And then I, maybe I'll talk about the ones that I've been thinking about, also what some of my colleagues have also been uh, been thinking about. So I guess I'll start from the, the, the one where, you know, at the end of the day, companies are there to make a profit uh, and to have a return for their investors. Right? I think without that, the companies may not uh, continue to exist. Right? If a company doesn't make a profit, uh, then there is no money to, to reinvest. Lenders are not willing to provide additional capital where they don't, they don't think they're going to get anything back. So for, for that reason, we then have to get to a point, which I think some people are already getting there, where ESG disclosures or even just the implementation itself of ESG is not you know, independent of what the business is about. Right. So in some ways, uh, what I'm sort of trying to say is you know, something that people have already uh, proposed, which is ESG uh, or, or anything to do with sustainability has to be incorporated or it has to be aligned with the core strategic objectives of the business. Uh, and so, you know, don't do things just for the sake of looking good in the society, but do things that actually help uh, move the objectives of, of the company. Uh, and sometimes that involves actually being good citizen to your community. Because if you're a good citizen to the community, then you have the license to operate. Right? If you are going to be a cement company, this is one case that we teach at uh, Harvard Business School, uh, the Ambuja, which is a cement company in, uh, in India, uh, they have to use a lot of water. Uh, they need to be able to, to use a lot of power. They need to be in communities. Uh, but if the communities don't think you're doing a good thing for them, you won't be able to survive as a company. And so for that reason, uh, you know, sustainability, uh, environmental issues are intertwined with your, your, your core businesses. So I guess number one then is let's think, let's think about how your core business objectives link to your ESG implementation and ESG performance, right? So it matters to, to be able to look at your processes and your outcomes from that perspective. Uh, and then the second thing that I would think about, uh, it sort of goes to it, it, the, the, the measurement of, of, of data, right? is we're thinking about the, the measurement of ESG ratings. So I think we, there has to be more transparency uh, in terms of you know, what is it that rating agencies are trying to capture. And some of this, I think it, it, it may have to be competitors sort of really sort of working together, uh, either as you know, just making sure that best, best practices are actually put in place. And this is one place maybe you know, we need some regulation. Right? So right now, the ESG ratings are just left to their own. Right? There's really no regulation, the same way that rating agencies are regulated. So I think the discussions have already started to happen uh, here in the US. I think the, uh, in Europe, they're sort of far, far ahead in terms of having already started those discussions. Uh, and so I think that's one thing that has to happen. There has to be some regulation uh, so that you know, there are some key things that should be, you know, I guess, become uni universal or uniform across some of these rating agencies. Uh, but we understand that there's going to be some differences that exist just from what different people think is important, right? For different industries, for different reasons. Uh, so that I think disagreement will never go away. But you know, the same way that there's some disagreement with credit ratings, but you know, that disagreement is, you know, it's not something that we see all the time. There's more overlap, right? There will be exceptions, right? So that's sort of what personally I think uh, we should go to see. Uh, and then maybe sort of one other thing uh, is that, you know, I guess we have to then start to think about is, you know, in, in terms of what 
companies themselves disclose, right? So I guess they sort of, what do they do? And then they sort of, how the rating agencies are regulators, how they agree, and then also what the companies uh, are going to disclose. So right now, a lot of countries require disclosure for ESG. The US, I think, is also sort of heading that way, where they're going to require some of this disclosure. Uh, and so I think, you know, managers should at least aim not to sort of play the game where they look at what the rating agencies are looking at, which is the inputs, and focus on that. But I think the rating the companies have to then focus on driving the narrative, right? So if they can control the narrative, because they're the ones that really understand what matters for their businesses. And if investors care about what they're disclosing, if in rating agencies are using what they're disclosing to provide ratings that investors use, then they should at least sort of start to really drive the narrative. Uh, so uh, the CEO of a Bank of America, uh, I think it was two years ago at the, the Davos World Economic Forum, he really, I think, brought some of this thinking uh, there, which is to say companies should get involved, at least in driving some of this disclosure, because there's still some confusion with how the disclosure is being used, just like we find in our, in our paper. I must admit, I love the idea of uh, focusing more on core strategy and how ESG fits in. I think that's a much more long-lasting way of approaching ESG uh, and a great way to achieve leadership for business leaders uh, in the medium to long term. Coming back uh, to our introduction, talking a little bit about your journey, I know that you have a deep interest in the role of capital markets and helping regions to develop, and that you obviously went back to Zimbabwe earlier in your um, studies. And I'm just wondering, when you speak to leaders in Africa, how are they thinking about ESG trends? Uh, yes. So again, at the end of the day, so if I were to define success for me, uh, it would have been I have contributed something to, to, to Africa. And I think if I've contributed something to the world, that's even better, right? But I think uh, my starting point uh, is there. And so for that reason, uh, I have been going back and uh, in, in most of my going back, especially over the last five years. So I, I'm very grateful to, 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 to Harvard Business School for supporting me in my research. And, you know, one thing that uh, at least sort of the that's sort of maybe a little known fact about sort of where I work is, you know, it's one of the best institutions in the world for education, but the drive usually when we go outside is actually not to teach, it's to learn, right? And so I have been going to Africa every year now for the last five years and not to teach, uh, you know, sometimes I may teach, but usually to learn, right? Uh, and so I've had that opportunity to, to meet with different leaders and one that, uh, really sort of uh, comes to mind. So I, maybe I should name names since I, I didn't ask for, for permission to do so. Uh, but I was talking to a finance minister in one of the countries there. And so, you know, we've talked about a lot of the, you know, the, the different issues that come up uh, and obviously credit ratings, you know, how does that uh, sort of affect the way that the country is working and sort of what are the goals there? And so, and then, you know, in, in discussing some of those challenges, right? So, I asked, what are the three things that will keep you up at night? And you know, I didn't expect one of the answers. It was climate change, uh, sort of thinking about how we are sort of getting to a point where you know, the environment is really just creating these issues, especially for countries in Africa where droughts are more often now. And so that you know, obviously intrigued me and sort of said, so why would the climate affect you? You're a finance minister, right? Shouldn't the minister of energy, agriculture be the ones that is sort of really thinking about how these things work? Uh, but so to his point, 
you sort of pointed out that, you know, if you're a country that, you know, or if you're a finance minister or a leader that is responsible for making sure that there are enough resources for the country to, to, to operate and to meet the needs of its population, uh, you know, you then have to worry about what could actually make it very expensive for you to acquire this. So thinking of climate change, yeah, so as climate change, as climate changes, uh, there's more droughts, that means uh, harvests are going to be uh, sort of reduced. Right? So if a country can no longer have enough, uh, you know, sort of harvest, this could be grains to feed its own population, you have to think about get, buying those from other countries. But if all of Africa is having uh, issues, then there are no countries from Africa to buy from, which means you have to cross the oceans uh, to go to Brazil to be able to buy maize that you can uh, bring into, into uh, let's say, Zimbabwe, South Africa, or other places. And if that happens, you now need to be able to get US dollars to be able to do these transactions because you can't really use your local currencies. And so, you know, in some ways, what happens with the environment, uh, what happens socially is going to really have some serious implications. So that's one thing that I know a lot of leaders in Africa are really thinking about, right? So they want to leave a legacy uh, of success. Uh, and obviously, there are always extremes, right? There are some that we think uh, don't really care about uh, their, their, their populations. But at least one thing that I've had is, you know, how do we manage the problems that are arising because of climate change? Uh, and so, you know, another story, I think, so the, the, the pension fund in South Africa, uh, it is one of the biggest pension funds uh, in, in Africa. Uh, and one of the things that they've started to do, again, with the realization that climate change is real, and especially for, for, for Africa, they provide financing to uh, venture capital uh, funds, they provide to private equity, they provide a lot of capital to, to different individuals that are sort of doing things uh, uh, in the business environment. And so what they've started to do is to require that anyone and you know, who comes to apply for funds should have a, uh, a plan for how uh, ESG issues are actually incorporated. So something to really sort of speak to this idea that uh, a lot of African leaders do realize that they have an opportunity, right? As Africa is developing, as many places have already developed, that you now have to require or at least have to have a way to make sure that you know, we don't forget the environment, we don't forget the social issues, and we don't forget good governance, because that can only bring good things uh, to the continent. So, lots of stories, but I think I'll sort of stop here. What I love about the two stories that you've shared is that it turns this narrative that is common, but I don't think uh, entrenched in reality, um, that developing countries don't have time or resources to focus on ESG. And what I'm hearing from you is that's absolutely not the case, that if you are in a situation where you perhaps don't have as much of a cushion to fall back on in the face of climate change, it's even higher on the agenda potentially. That is true. Yeah. So, so I'm not saying, you know, there are times where this is not being ignored, right? So I think, you know, the, what you're bringing up, that I think that's something that is still true, that it's a debate where some people are saying, you know, all oh, these developed countries, right, they developed by polluting the environment, right? And so why should developing countries or, you know, emerging countries, most of which are in Africa and maybe Latin America as well, why should they pay the price today? But I think, uh, so actually, I think, you know, this week, uh, the UN Secretary General uh, made a call to the, to, to, to the world and said, you know, now as we are thinking about getting out of the COVID pandemic, it's an amazing opportunity to really sort of think about, are we going to emerge 
uh, brown or are we going to emerge green? Uh, and so what he was trying to say there is, as we try to find money, because right now all the countries around the world are really sort of scrambling to, to get enough resources to be able to, you know, in some ways restart or maybe sort of just jumpstart the economies after this pandemic. Right. So in the US, we've seen all these stimulus packages. Uh, in Europe, we have also seen sort of some things being discussed. And other countries, unfortunately, they don't have the same resources, but they now have to go to the international markets to borrow. And so as this borrowing and all these things are happening, what I think the UN uh, Secretary General was saying, and something that I am up for and I'm really awful, which is to say, let's really think seriously about where that money goes. Right. You know, is it going to just sort of support the programs that we had before or do we want to look forward and say five, six or even 10 years, where do we want our economies to be? And then we invest in those specific areas. And I think, you know, this is where some of the leaders in Africa, in other parts of the world already know. Right. That, you know, if you invest in sort of smart technologies, you invest in your people, you invest in, you know, sort of good governance right? that can only help. Uh, as, as, as the countries move forward. So I think, you know, the, the, the world uh, really is at a, a fantastic opportunity to sort of think about some of these issues. Uh, and green, I guess green just meaning all these good things about the environment, the social and the governance uh, can actually become part of the, of the discussion. I couldn't agree more, Siko. I'm just uh, imagining myself as one of your students at Harvard Business School, I'm imagining myself in a lecture hall, um, and I have a question for you about kernels of wisdom. So when you teach first-year MBA students, how do you aim to shape or inform their thinking? Interesting. So it's actually in ways that you, that you may not have expected. Uh, and so I, I understand that we have to, to, to make sure that when everyone walks out, so I guess for me, I teach in the accounting and management unit. Uh, and the course I teach is called financial reporting and control. Right? So it's really about, you know, so the control part speaks to the governance, right? So uh, we, we have something that we say, which is when you're going to build a very fast car, you need to make sure that it has good brakes. Right? And so again, sort of making sure that we are, you know, whatever we're doing, right, we are going to want to make the world a better place. We want the economy to be flourishing, but it actually has to be an economy that we, we understand sort of the, the, the controls that are needed uh, in place, especially at the corporate level. But I think the, the one thing that for me that matters, I think, is sort of to let students realize that, you know, we're teaching them to read financial statements, to think about businesses, but at the end of the day, they are people, right? So they need to be able to have something that they, they can hold on to, right? So it's, it, the, their world is not limited to what they understand in my classes. Uh, and so for, so for that reason, I, I think one of the things that I always want to make sure I infuse is, you know, what are the things that I like to do, right? The things that, you know, make me excited, right? Uh, and, you know, so I, I teach a lot of different things. Uh, and so in every course or in every case that I teach, I'm always looking for one thing that, you know, here's why I'm doing this. Uh, and so growing up in Africa, uh, growing up in, in, I guess, sort of in Zimbabwe, in, in, in more specifically, uh, I care about, you know, the development there and I care about sort of the development everywhere in, 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 in many respects. And so that's something that I'm, I'm always trying to sort of see uh, that, you know, as we develop uh, or as companies do well, but at the end of the day, 
you know, is it enough to have done well? Uh, but or do we actually have to have something else that that goes beyond that? So I, I'm, you know, as I guess in some ways, uh, maybe you know, sort of in one sentence is the students should sort of look at what you do, not so much as, you know, this is it, but that there is, there has to be something bigger than, uh, than that. Shared prosperity. It sounds like a, a theme uh, that you are looking to instill, which is absolutely imperative given the mainstreaming of ESG that we're seeing. And also the fact that so many people who are joining the workforce or who are in the workforce uh, are really looking to work for companies that have a deeper purpose. Yeah, and I've only been teaching it, uh, for five years now, uh, but I think just in these five years, I've sort of seen that trend, uh, especially for, for students that, you know, they're not really thinking about investment banking, right? Not to say they're not some that are, and I think that there's some, there ought to be some that are, right? Because again, we are an ecosystem, right? Every, every part of our ecosystem must continue to move forward. But I've seen a lot more students that really are moving towards sort of, uh, you know, thinking about social enterprises. Uh, but it not, it's not so much about let's just do good, but it's let's do good well. Uh, and sort of, you know, if we can do it profitably, we can do it sustainably. And that's something that has pushed us as professors to really think about how we, we teach our cases. Uh, when I started, we did not have a case on, you know, sort of sustainability. But over the last few years, we have had, you know, more and more cases where we are really building in uh, sort of the thinking around these issues. And that's driven because of the, by the students, their desires, their ambitions is really to, to, to change the world. Right? And that's, that's, quite, that's quite impressive, right? I think we've, over the years, we have always had a small group of students that have continued to do that. And many students that have gone on and done well, and then they continue to, to, to incorporate all these issues that we're talking about. But I think now, I think more and more is starting even at this, uh, at this level. And so really exciting. My last question for you, Siko, relates to ideas uh, with enduring relevance. So I'm wondering if you had to choose just one, what is the book or idea that's played an especially significant role in shaping your perspective? So I, I would have to say it's actually uh, Tuesdays with Maury. Uh, it's a book by Mitch Albon. Uh, I, I read that book back in, uh, I believe, it, the first time I read it was around 2007, 2008. You know, at the time, I just thought, oh, this is really uh, interesting, really amazing. But I think as I look back now in terms of the themes in that book, uh, yeah, things that I've sort of seen over time, uh, sort of repeated, which is, you know, you really have to find a purpose in life, right? Uh, uh, and so personally for me, I, I tend to do well when I, I know exactly why I'm doing something, right? So it could be on a research project, right? So these are just short-term things, but the ones where I'm really excited, I sort of see where, where it's going, the value that it provides, I'm most excited. I sort of have, I bring everything to it. Uh, and, you know, then sort of bringing it out to, 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 to life. So I've, you know, at least, you know, different people sort of make different uh, choices. Uh, so for me, family was very important. Uh, and, uh, and so I, 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 I put that, you know, sort of almost first, right? So, not, you know, obviously if I have a meeting, I'm going to tell my kids to, to, to leave the office. Uh, but I want them to, you know, I, that's sort of 
the most important thing. And, you know, so I think Tuesdays with Mori is something that really sort of gets to this issue. So if, you know, some of the, the listeners have not read it, it's a book that I highly recommend. Uh, it's about a former student and a professor. They really sort of every Tuesday in the last few years or the dying years of the professor, they revisit a lot of these different issues. And the professor talks about the things he'd wished he'd done. He talks about the things that he's done, really just about life. Uh, and so when I was doing my MBA uh, at the University of Virginia, I had a professor who found out that I was going to become an academic. And he says, you know, whatever you do, you know, sort of make sure you work hard, but don't, you know, don't forget the things that matter because you may work hard and succeed uh, and then you come home, uh, but there's nothing to come back for. Right? Uh, and so that has always stayed with me. And again, it sort of speaks to this idea in Tuesdays with Mori, which is, you know, you really have to find a purpose, but uh, which sort of also means you kind of find the things that matter and hold on to those things no matter what. Uh, but, you know, it doesn't take away from the need to be excellent in whatever you do. So excellency in you know, my work, excellency in my relationships uh, is something that I still strive for. Uh, but knowing that, you know, those, you know, work is not the most important thing, right? It sort of enables me to do what I do. Uh, but at least for me, family is, uh, and for different people, different things will be, right? So it could be your personal happiness, uh, just being you, right, for yourself. I think that's actually very, very, very important. What a great note to end on. Siko, thank you so much for joining The Future in Sound. It has been my great pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you to Seiko for joining us. You can learn more about his work by checking out the links in the episode description or by visiting re.co.com slash The Future and Sound. The Future and Sound podcast is written and hosted by Jen Wilson and produced by Chris Attaway. This podcast is brought to you by Rico, a market intelligence company helping clients achieve resilient competitive advantage in the long term. If you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to tell a friend about it. And if you have a moment, rate us in your podcast app. Until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.